Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, singer, manager, promoter, Les Vote. We'll be talking about the business of music, the life of an entertainer, then a promoter, and we'll get some other insights as well about the history of the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for more than half a century. Les Vote is an icon of the Canadian music scene and someone I've had the honor to work with many times myself. He's a living historian of sorts of the business and has basically done it all, starting out as a successful artist and then moving into management and promotion. So lots to talk about today. Thanks for joining me, Les. How are you, my friend? Just fine. So you're still active. You're still doing things, which is great. Uh, that's nice to see. Well, of course, we're, we're shut down now yeah. with this COVID thing. Are you going to start back up? I, I noticed on your Legends of Rock and Roll site, you're not rescheduling anything yet until you figure out what the heck's going on with everything. That's correct. We're we're uh, not certain we're, we're coming back, uh, dealing with oldies shows for basically seniors. We yeah. um, think that uh, they're going to be reluctant to come back even when things are supposedly back to normal. Yeah. So we'll watch. We'll watch what happens at the casinos, which uh, is our target market, and uh, take a close look before uh, taking too many chances. Yeah, fair enough. So, but in a perfect world, things could come back. You know, by the end of the year, right? Things are looking fairly optimistic, and people get back to normal. You'll be back in the game. You think? I, you know, we're just looking at it because it, it's it's up in the air from my point of view. Okay, fifty-fifty. I think. Yeah. Okay, well, well, we'll keep track of that because uh, I'd love to see you get back into it. And I know you, you're one of those guys that likes to stay active. So I've always appreciated that about you. Okay. And, and lots of people are interested in the history of Canadian music and the music makers. And, and you know, you have an advantage, vantage point that most people do not have because you've been active, I guess, since the late 50s, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was 1958, really, when... Uh, when things started to start a little bit, got going a little bit there. Um, in 1960, uh, when our, our record went big time locally, uh, was very helpful. That yeah. um, we'd, rec- we'd recorded a, uh, a demo for Alan Parker, songwriter that called himself Sipson P. Kloop, funny name, but... Mm. I guess he wanted to get noticed, but anyway, he'd he'd get groups to make demos of his uh, songs, and then he'd try and sell them uh, to the marketplace. And uh, we did it in 1958, and uh, it found it a home in in 1960. It came out. Uh, the Blamers came out uh, and became a number one hit in Vancouver. Yeah, it's amazing how that happens. I mean, it, it seems that when your story, I must say, I, I read your story. I knew much of it anyways, because I, I've known you for many years. But uh, when I read your story, it's, it's kind of fun. You know, you're a bunch of young guys. You get together, you like to sing, and and you're from Vancouver. So you put this thing together, and then all of a sudden, you're you're off to the races with this uh, song. And, and the fluke phone call, I guess, was, was what happened, right? Yeah, it was uh, Jack Cullen was the uh, announcer of the day before Red Robinson came along and he had a show called the owl prowl that came on late and uh we um we phoned his radio program or or one of the girls actually at our rehearsal did it and played it played us over the phone and uh he got such a good response to that he brought us in the studio and uh 
he recorded in his radio studio a bunch of stuff with us and started playing it like uh, like we were on the phone. I'm not sure if he did carry on with the phone gimmick, yeah. but uh, anyway, that's why we called ourselves the Prowlers. Yeah, that's amazing. Isn't that funny how that goes? I often ask people, do you have a defining moment? Was there that kind of thing that happened to you? And then for you, I guess it was it was that. It was just a fluke, right? Just to... Yeah, we recorded a we recorded something at a a little recording studio of sorts, A and A Sound, I think it was way back when on Broadway, and uh, we had a a record out that we thought was very good. Um, but um, uh, Red Robinson at CKWX or wherever he was at, I forget where he was at. I think that's no. where it was. He uh, he wouldn't play it because they uh, they deemed us competition from another radio station be- uh-huh. because we were called the Prowlers. Yeah, and it was disappointing. And uh, anyway, when the Blamers. Uh, was scheduled to get released. We we did it with just my name. Besides, the band had broken up by then. Okay, so uh, it became less vote to, or the less vote. Uh, yeah, that's all that was on the record. And yep. uh, I teamed up with a with a local band that that okay. I'd kind of been playing around with anyway on the weekends here and there and whatnot. Yep. And we became less vote and the Blamers. Uh, okay. Yeah. This group was called the Originals, I think, back then, and we just called called the group Less Vote and yeah. the Blamers because of the record. Yeah, cool. So, what was the Get a Move On? That that was a song you had written with, and then it was on yeah. the Aragon label. That yeah. was early, though, right? Yeah, yeah. That that that's the one we couldn't get any airplay on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that was early, and, and the Aragon record label, was that like a local Vancouver record yeah. label that you signed with? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a lease deal or something. I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah. But, you're, I mean, you're young guys. It's exciting, right? I mean, you've you got sure. the songs, and you're on the radio, and you, you end up charting, and, and I guess you knocked off Elvis out of uh, From It's Now or Never. That was the song, and then you got your song on there. and uh, We were number one for 11 weeks, and... Uh, oh. Uh, actually, Red was was no longer at the station. He'd gone down to work in Portland, Oregon, and uh, Dave McCormick, Big Daddy Dave McCormick, was the uh, the the big guy at the time. And uh, he he told me that uh, they had to force the record off the charts because it would have been number one for another eleven weeks. It was wow. the first local record, I guess, to do really well. So. Yeah. Um, people were uh, eager to keep voting for it, so they they had to kind of force it down. Yeah. Well, you and you were the first. You said you were the first Elvis-style rock and roll band in Vancouver, right? I think so. Is that the way you described yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I yeah. uh, we were just uh, the Fraser View Drifters until Elvis came along, and then, uh, well, I think a lot of the pop singers tried to be like Elvis as much as they could. I mean, Conway Twitty and all the rock and rollers that came down the pike were were trying to emulate Elvis pretty much, I think, and we were no different. Yeah, and it was so successful. And then, but it's funny because categorizing that music, I mean, like "Get a Move On" or the other, some of the other songs, like they're kind of doo-wop, and there's a kind of a country feel, and there's a bit of rockabilly in there. How did you categorize that stuff? Well, we didn't really, because um, we were a half 
half country kind of a band in the beginning. And when I guess Elvis was too in his yeah. beginning. So uh, anyway, neither here nor there, we didn't categorize anything. We were basically a teenage rock and roll band, I guess. Yeah. Even though the, the Blamers was a ballad. So uh, you did Teenagers Dream. And that was kind of a doo-wop flavor too, but that was on Jaguar Records. Was that your own? Did you start your own label then? Yeah. Um, we went to Seattle to record that with uh, with uh, the Joe Bowles studio. He recorded the Ventures and all those Seattle groups. Okay. Um, and uh, that that was our, it was a strong record, I, I felt. I, I liked it the best, actually. Yeah. Um, and we went to number three, I think, with that, but nothing much uh, better than that. We did. We didn't duplicate the Blamers' uh, status. That's for sure. So you didn't have managers. You said there w- there wasn't a lot of organization, right? I mean, it sounds like you started your own organization with the record company. Yeah, there there was no, um, uh, you know, a route to follow. No, no rules or anything. Uh, we hadn't couldn't copy anybody else. There were, there wasn't a manager or, or, or whatnot for, for us to just go to. We had to figure it all out ourselves. So, um, uh, that, that, that's why it was a slow process. And, and, yeah. and really there wasn't a living to be made in the business at the time, even yeah. with a hit record. Um, it wasn't a business that, you know, could afford me raising a family or anything. So basically, um, I delivered milk as a, as a milkman and worked on the weekends with the band. That's, that's how that went. And, yeah. And- that's, that's, that's humbling, but you know, I mean, that's true of like, for example, in the NHL, right? A lot of the NHL players, they weren't full-time hockey players. I mean, it was the same sort of deal, right? They had jobs and then they played hockey and you guys were musicians, but you also had a day job to, to pay the rent, right? Yeah. And I promoted our own dances, really. I learned how to make posters and, you know, distribute them. And I, I had a, a mailing list, much like, you know, you do uh, on the internet today. So you were, you were working a day job and you were promoting your own dances and uh, starting to get into the promotion side of it because, I mean, you really had to, right? Eventually what happened for me was... Um, uh, I got calls from the places we were playing asking if I knew of any other uh, entertainers or talent bands that they could they could hire and so that's how I got into being an agent I uh, I started to to get some of the other groups uh, around into uh, the places I had played and I took a commission so I basically started a, a booking agency. That's where, that's how it started, by uh, my getting in first with the record and stuff, and then uh, buyers wanting uh, other talent, and I was in a position to, to, to line it up. And lo and behold, I, I became an agent. Well, that's one one of the things I've always admired about you is you're you're you know you're an opportunist, right? You say, well, got to do things out of necessity. You got to promote your own shows. You got to 
sell the tickets. You got to get other people on board and stuff. And and that ended up uh, turning into something good for you, as, especially as the music part of it went down. Yeah. Or you you didn't want to you didn't want to chase the music for the rest of your life. I, I was going to ask you about um, you you mentioned in your bio that you conceived a song in a dream, and it reminded me because Paul McCartney said he wrote "Let It Be" in a dream. And you said you fell asleep and you dreamed this song and then you woke up and you'd written it. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was my uh, guitar player. We were in his car. He was driving, and Elvis was sitting between us in the front row, front seat, uh, <laughs> going story. going to a gig. And uh, and uh, I think. I don't know really where we're going, but anyway, on the radio pops this song, and Elvis turns up the radio and says, "Here's my new song." Oh, yeah. and, and 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 that was uh, that was the song. So when I woke up, I I, I wrote down the quickly the uh, the meat and potatoes of it, and then later on, uh, you know, I, I elaborated on it, of course, and so yeah. yeah, it came to me in a dream. That was uh, kind of magical. Amazing. And what song was that? That was, uh, uh, I was, I was trying to get something like don't be cruel. So the guitar, um, was, um, get a move on. I think it was for sure. I think, I think. Get a move on. Yeah. That, that's, that's got the doo-wop country sort of rockabilly feel. So then, then you recorded, I'm going to sit right down and cry over you, but you never wrote that one, right? No, no, I, it, it was an Elvis song we put on the back. I think we put it on the back side of something. Yeah, I just can't. I can't remember exactly. Uh, it's been so long. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Yeah, and I had a chuckle over it because it's it's on the forty five, and they spelt your name less. Vote V O T E, right? That was on <laughs> purpose, though. <laughs> was it? Did you do that on purpose? We did it on purpose because yeah. I was getting, uh, you know, uh, announcers, DJs, etc. Vogat, Vogat, Vot. Oh, okay. Uh, it, it was, right. you know, not uh, not clear what how to pronounce the yeah. name. So, yeah, because uh, it's V O G T. So yeah. people couldn't couldn't. Yeah, I got you. Uh, we changed it back because uh, it was a mistake, yeah. really. But, but uh, you know, just quick thinking. Anyway. Oh well, that's uh, the pronunciation. You do it phonetically, and it's easier that. But uh, so your singing career. I mean, you had a smooth voice in the vein of the other male vocalists at the time. You had a nice tone and good con- good voice control and good vocal control and stuff. And uh, you know, you had a, a viable career from what I can see. And you had a hit song. And but you just didn't carry on with that. No, uh, I never had the confidence. Really, uh, in fact, when we recorded. Uh, Teenager's Dream in Seattle, uh, Joe Bowles had a song that he thought suited my voice, and he asked me if I would come down and and record a, a song for him. And uh, I wasn't confident enough to do that, uh, and I refused, which uh, was a big mistake because hmm. the song that he wanted me to do was Come Softly to Me, which, which was the Fleetwoods. And it was just a studio manufactured song. They hadn't, it wasn't a group. They were looking for somebody to, to sing, to, you know, a lead vocalist for that song. And yeah. when I heard it, I thought, wow, you know, it really suited me. It was something I should have done. So, yeah. you know, when people ask me, as they often do, you know, what, you know, do I have any advice for up and coming performers etc i always i always suggest 
you know, they take advantage of every opportunity that comes their way. And, and I uh, tell them this story. Yeah. And no, I think that's good advice. And I, I've said the same thing myself. Try to say yes as much as you can, because that'll get you into the doors that you need to get into. But you and I talked before about this. I remember years ago, we talked about this and you said you just didn't prefer performing that, that once you got into the management side of it, that you preferred that it was more an affinity to the management and the business part of it, which you're excellent at. So it seems you were drawn to that rather than chasing the next song or chasing the next live show for yourself. I think so. By the time, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got successful and, and, and of course uh, you success always breeds more success. So, um, I didn't, I just didn't think about it anymore. Uh, after a little while, I was never comfortable on stage totally. Yeah. And, um, that I think had, mo had, had the most to do with, uh, my reasoning was, uh, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fair enough. I mean, that's, that's a reasonable way to do it. If you're, you're doing what you're drawn to and, and you're going to sort of not do what you're not drawn to. And then I was going to ask you about the song, just say goodnight that you, you wrote because you didn't finish your music career. You were still performing, right? I assume in well into the sixties, right? And that song was 1969, right? Yeah, it, it was, um, it was, it was the doodling songs that I had kind of tucked away that uh, we had our, our band just did a home recorded version of that, which is, okay. which is what, what I had doctored up. And uh, had you heard that? Is that? Uh, no, I didn't actually hear the song, but I was, when I was reading your, your bio, it talked about that you had written this song and it was recorded in 1969, a home recording of your guitar player. Is it Larry Tillier? Is that the way you pronounce it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a bass player, and uh, he had recorded it, and he sent it to me, um, okay. and and I uh, I doctored it up as best I could. It, it it actually it sounds very good. I I the band isn't very good because we we, we just weren't very good, but yeah. uh, but but uh, it was just a simple backup, and and uh, I really I really like this song. It's it's country, but it's it's really good and i could send it to you if you want to yeah uh, yeah i'd love to listen to it I, I just what struck me though about the whole thing is that you were you were moving in so many different directions i mean you had your own band you were still singing and playing you were booking and promoting other shows you were eventually got into running nightclubs and teen dances i mean you were you were moving in a lot of different directions you must have had a lot of balls in the air at that time i did and i had to i had to settle on uh uh, letting some of it go because it was, uh, affecting, uh, you know, my proficiency. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet. Yeah. Just a lot of stuff on the go. Roy Orbison was what, uh, what got me, got yeah. me out of it. A lot, a lot of it because I had an opportunity to work with him. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess, uh, red, red and I had promoted a show with him early when, when he first, uh, in 19, jeez, I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's 61. Oh, so you met Roy Orbison that early because that was right when Pretty Woman came out in what? Well, been right, right around then, right? Uh, well, he'd had a few songs. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we brought him in 
scheduled a, a, a dance at the gardens. We were doing dances, Red and I, so it had to be after 61 when he came it back. It was 62, you had him at the gardens, right? Okay. 1962 is what I got written Six, here. 62, there, there yeah. you go. We had him at the gardens. It was scheduled to be a dance, and we found out that there was an old bylaw that said you had to be over 18 in the city to dance, and so hmm. it, it's, it came back from the early days when you when when dancing was uh in kind of cabaret like things with the shelf under the table and you brought your own bottle and they served glasses and yeah pop and 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 it was for over eight over adults so yeah. uh okay. really really that's what a dance was so they uh they brought that old bylaw out to battle rock and roll and they uh, wow. uh we had to change it to a concert so yeah. the roy Orbison dance became a concert uh, the gardens is ideal for that because there was bleachers all around uh, and a big floor and a permanent stage. So we just put chairs in and we had 2,000 people paid and it right. was, uh, was a sold-out concert. Oh, and super. We're, we're now in the concert business. Well, there you go. And then you're off to the races because you formed a, a somewhat of a partnership and a friendship with Roy Orbison, right? So you knew him well and you, you went to England with him right after, was it the well, following at, year? At, yeah, I, at that time, uh, I, the following year, I went to England uh, just to hang out with the band because they were touring and they yeah. knew me and, and we li liked each other. And so I was able to hang out with them, which was good. Um, yeah. uh, we, we went to a the Bag and Ales Club there, which was for entertainers, yeah, and uh, it was kind of interesting. And uh, Tom Jones was sitting at Roy's in the band's table. I was yeah. with them, of course. Nice. And uh, they wanted Lennon was there. John Lennon was in the audience, and they wanted to meet him, but they didn't didn't know how to go about it. But anyway, he went to the can, went to the washroom. So they yeah. followed him in. They were gonna just accidentally bump into him and say hi, you know, which they did. Uh, Hi, we're uh, Roy Orbison's band, and, and and Lennon said, "Yeah, so what?" <laughs> and they were going to invite him over to the table anyway. They came back to the table and just said, uh, "I don't know if I should say this." They said, "What an asshole he was." <laughs> <laughs> so, but there's a famous story of of the Beatles opening up for Roy Orbison. What, what's the deal? Oh, with that? yeah, I mean that was the time when when uh, the Beatles were just beginning sort of and Roy was an established American star so um, they were on the same program and uh, they they wanted in fact Brian Epstein uh, came to Roy and said uh, you know you sing mostly ballads and we're you know a, a rock and roll band and maybe you know would you mind if we closed the show and Roy agreed. He didn't care. And then that first night, uh, Roy had 14 encores. Wow. By the time, by the, time the Beatles uh, got on stage, people were ready to go home. So needless to say, um, Roy cl closed the shows from then on. Wow. Well, he, well, he was a big star. I mean, you talked somewhat in your in your bio about Roy wasn't a big star everywhere in in terms of promoting shows, but in England, Roy was. They loved him over there, right? I mean, he exactly. Toured. Yeah, and that's why um, all those years later, um, it was mid seventies, uh, or when or when was it? Uh, yeah, it was seventy six, I think. Uh, 
I got back with Roy. What happened was I saw him touring, not touring, but playing in a nightclub. I saw him advertised. I mean, he had a lot of tragedies after that, as you probably yeah, know his, do, yeah. his story of all the his children dying in the fire and his yeah. wife killed in the motor fight just yeah. after they remarried. Anyway, neither here nor there, um, I realized that he was likely depressed and out of commission and not touring. But then I saw him appearing in a in a nightclub uh, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And I thought, wow, what's yeah. this all about? I tracked him down and, and he sent uh, his band leader, uh, de facto manager, up to see me. Yeah. Uh, and he told him to make a deal because uh, we had paid him a bonus actually back then when he played here. He had three shows and him and his band owned earned $800 per night for the whole bunch of them, yeah. which of course isn't very much these days. But anyway, we gave him a $1,000 bonus uh, yeah. at the end of those shows. And he sent uh, his uh, his guy up to see me. He said, "They, you know, make a deal. They are the only people to ever pay me more than the contract <laughs> called for." So that was that was interesting and uh, uh, probably uh, helped in in getting that deal together. And I I did get a, a Canada wide tour for him set up after that, and we did very very well. And he invited me down to the U.S. to look after his U.S dates yeah. which which i did do ultimately well good for you and and the funny thing is looking back on it especially someone from my vantage point i mean you just think of roy oberson as a superstar i mean he was one of the, the the peak guys you know so to think of him playing at a bar in thunder bay or in a small venue in thunder bay is, is, is a real disconnect right i mean it must have been odd for you to think of that too it was for me uh yeah. and 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 of course i got a hold of him and, and proved otherwise and yeah. And that's why I got the chance to go down and work in the U.S. with him. And I will say that uh, it wasn't as good there. He had his his hot pockets. Um, one in three would be really good. One in three would break even. And one in three would be down. Yeah. Uh, at the end of it all, it was it was still in the plus area, but yeah. but not but barely. So so it wasn't that great. Um, yeah. I did get something really good going for him, though, which was um, uh, when when he was away on tour. I was lining up dates for when he came back, and and I had lined up something in uh, Santa Monica, uh, California. And Roy had told me never to book him in Los Angeles or New York because he didn't trust those people. He thought they were crooks and yeah. and that's why he lived in Nashville. But but I couldn't resist this date because there was a, a top notch rock and roll oldies radio station. That's when oldies were just the big new thing yeah. uh, where the station played oldies all day long. Um, they wanted to sponsor the show and they 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 did massive advertising, including uh, some television um, for absolutely free, no charge. And it was a deal that I couldn't turn down. It was too good to be true, basically. Yeah. So I booked the date and Roy wasn't happy about it, but he did it. And it's so fortunate he did because anyone who was 
anyone in the business in the LA market was there. We're talking uh, uh, Beach Boys, um, uh, Linda Ronstadt, uh, actually a um, couple of those. Uh, did, did, Bob, did Bob Dylan show up to that? No, he, 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 Jeff Lynn was there. Uh, and, and many people I didn't recognize. But anyway, they were all wanting to talk to Roy and, 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 and come backstage and, hey, where you been? What you doing? Why don't we get together, write some songs and da-da-da? Yeah. And I thought, boy, this is an opportunity. Roy, you have to, you have to get a L.A. manager. I mean, I was just a de facto, you know, in-between guy that, that was good for the getting him back on track. But yeah. he needed to take the next step, which he ultimately did. He, he, he moved to Malibu. He rented a home there started working with those guys and uh, lo and behold, the traveling Wilburys result uh, from that uh, endeavor. So uh, I feel, you know, really uh, proud of the fact that I had a hand in getting him back uh, to his uh, rightful spot in yeah. rock and roll history. Absolutely. And you got to be part of the uh, formation of the Traveling Wilburys. And it, it's cool because you can always tell certain musicians by the way that their peers think of them. I mean, sure, there's there's Roy and fans, but when your peers show up and say, hey, you're a serious guy, we need to we need to connect with you. It's a, it's a great thing. Well, listen, I'm going to take a quick break here and we're going to come right back talking to Les Vote about the history of Canadian music. But we'll be right back. Liner Notes has a VIP community and we'd love to have you as a member. Listen to the weekly episodes before the rest of the world, enjoy bonus podcasts, and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Oh yeah, the episodes also have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. Check out the details and become a member at linernotes.ca. That's linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Les Vote about the history of Canadian music and someone who's been there since, really since the late 50s and has lots to share, been involved in many things. You've met lots of stars in your life. I was going to ask you, did you ever meet the Beatles? Did you ever get a chance to meet those guys? No, but uh, interestingly enough, when I was there with Roy, when he was touring uh, with the Beatles, uh, Brian Epstein actually offered the Beatles to me to book shows in Canada, oh, could wow. I could I find a way to? I wasn't I wasn't a booker at the time, but uh, you know they were they were offering to come over for three hundred dollars a show. Wow! Now that's when uh, you know Roy was making eight hundred, and 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 the, yeah. uh, I guess uh, five hundred was was the average uh, uh, price for a band American hit record band at that time so so it was too costly and they weren't known they looked funny they looked funny nobody heard of them and of course uh shortly afterwards after ed sullivan uh they were uh they were huge uh so yeah that was 64 right so you this would have been pre-64 because i think that's when they first came right yeah it was in 63 when that when i was 
with Roy over there okay. and, and the Beatles yeah. were on the Roy tour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's, that's okay. interesting. I could have been the first guy to book the Beatles in North America. <laughs> well, I mean, you've worked with so many big stars and met so many of them. I mean, you, Bill Haley and Gene Vincent, and of course, Buddy Knox was around. He kicked around Canada for a lot of years and Eddie Cochran, and you worked with Jerry Lee Lewis, the killer, right? And uh, yeah. Charlie Rich, you were friends, you were good friends with Charlie Rich. Yeah, he he came to the Purple Steer yeah. on two different occasions. That was the nightclub that I was involved with. Yeah, uh, I, I he was a he was a fine talent. I can tell yeah. you for sure. Yeah, yeah, he was one of the, he didn't have a lot of hit songs, but uh, strong performer, right, and good personality. Yeah, but he came he came on the scene uh, with Lonely Weekends way back when. Then. Uh, he has another wave a few years later, Mohair Sam. Hmm. Then, boom, the big time behind closed doors. Yeah, yeah. He had three cracks at it, you know. Uh, amazing. He was he was around for a while. Yeah, yeah. You got some funny stories with him too. I read your I read your I must say your your biography that you put on there is is, is quite good. I mean, it's it's very revealing and it's very honest, and you tell a lot of interesting stories and charlie rich is is a big part of that right he hung out at your house and you guys were buddies yeah after the first uh, engagement he was due to come in and uh for the second one uh and he called me he called me from the airport uh in in uh i think it was san francisco and he said uh you know we're delayed here there's going to be a, there's a problem that they're looking at so don't don't come to the airport, you know, we're supposed to leave in about a half an hour. So hold back a bit. So I said, okay. So I was just getting ready uh, to leave again, uh, half an hour later. And um, he calls again. And uh, I said, what? I thought you said the plane was uh, supposed to leave. Uh, he said, yeah. He says, uh, uh, the plane had left all right, but I don't think I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the bar. <laughs> oh, man. Another one of those promoter's nightmares, right? So so he never made the show, I guess. No, there wasn't a show. Uh, it, it, he was just coming in to uh, to to rehearse with the, the band. We had a new a, uh, one new player. And, and we so he, he didn't miss any shows. Okay, but, uh, sure. yeah. Yeah, no, wow. that, that that was okay, but it was it was just 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 funny. That, uh, yeah. So, in, did you work with Jerry Lee Lewis? Did you get to meet him and hang out with him? Well, uh, at Expo '86, um, I produced the uh, Legends of Rock and Roll shows uh, yes. every Sunday yeah. at Expo '86, and and Jerry Lee was uh, was on that program, so we met him. He he. That was kind of interesting too, because um, uh, when he was up doing shows with Red and I earlier, you know, you know in the early days, yeah. um, we used a guard dog for uh, for, for uh, bouncer like activities at the dances. Oh. It, it worked out r really well, yeah. and he hired our our dog guy and his dog, hmm. and uh, and he ultimately bought the dog from the guy. Oh. And so when he was at Expo, he said to me, 
uh, did I, uh, you know, could I put him back in touch with that dog guy? Because, uh, you know, I need another dog. And uh, his his manager at the time is waving to me in the background and da-da-da-da-da. Anyway, he came up to me after. He said, don't get him another dog. He said, he, he killed that dog. Oh. So that was sad, a yeah. sad situation. Well, he was a bit of a goof. Well, Jerry Lee was certifiably crazy, right? Especially in the early years. I wonder by Expo, he might have mellowed out a bit by then. But uh, certainly in the 60s and stuff, he was well known for his crazy antics and stuff. I mean, I'm assuming that's all true, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm an animal guy. And, uh, you know, he it just turned me off. He turned me yeah. off at that point when, uh, when he was cruel to... Uh, uh, his dog anyway yeah, not of course well no that's right i i would agree with you on that for sure and i just want to hear about these legendary stories and then and then i've talked to promoters who have dealt with some of these these prima donnas and some of these guys and it's a real nightmare from a from a promoter's perspective because you got these basically yeah. out of control people that you're trying to you know herding cats and trying to get these people on stage and well i've worked with you on shows many times and and even with the impersonators you have those problems at times <laughs> Yeah. Now Charlie Rich, he, he when he became big time, he uh he was at the Coliseum for his his show and uh I remember going into the Coliseum and the and the manager uh of the Coliseum when I came in he said, Hey, come here, Charlie wants to see you. I thought, Wow. So anyway, he takes me down into the bowels of the Coliseum uh, into the dressing room area and there's about a there's a whole there's about a hundred big, um, like a rows of chairs of, of press waiting to see Charlie. Oh. And he walks me right in front of all these people in the dressing room. And I, I knew a lot of the press guys and I felt really <laughs> embarrassed kind of. So anyway, I, I got in there and Charlie's in there all by himself, big table of food. He said, take some of this home and liquor too. He said, I don't drink anymore. <laughs> take some of this home. I said, I told him, I said, look, you know, I, we can talk later if, if you know, you got all these people you need to talk to. And he said, fuck them. Where were they when we needed them? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I felt really privileged. Yeah. Well, you guys had a, had a bond anyways. You had a connection from before, right? So he probably, you were one of the guys he trusted and wanted to hang out with, right? Yeah. And, and I told him that the boys in the band were, were at the show as well. And on the stage, he mentioned his days in the Purple Steer, and he said hi to Vernon John and the band and so on. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. Well, that's really Well, you've met so many stars over the years. I mean, it's it's really amazing. So which ones really stood out to you? Is there any any stars that you met that really impressed you as, as people, you know, that really stood out to you? Charlie Rich, of course, and Roy yeah. Orbison. Yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't get a chance... You know, Buddy Knox, of course. Yeah. Um, he he moved to Canada and he lived with me for a period of time, and he became my partner at the Purple Steer. He was one of the original partners. Yeah. Um, uh, in return for playing on a regular basis. Yeah, nice. uh, in the club, so uh, I didn't get a chance really to uh, to get to know most of the artists that I met were just on a on a performance basis, you know, they're in, they're yep. doing a show and, and they don't really have time for much other than, and get ready and 
do the show and move on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't always form a personal connection, but if you have a, an affinity for one another and I, you know, from myself, for example, working with you and stuff, I, I kind of take the attitude, like you're my friend and I want to do a good job for you. I want to, I want to make sure everything's good. But I guess in, in that sort of level of the business, it's, it's more, uh, you're hiring a franchise, that franchise comes in, they do what they need to do. You pay them and they leave. And say yeah, that. it got less and less personal uh, as time went on. When, when in the early days with Roy Orbison, uh, he and I took care of everything directly. Yeah. Now there's a stage manager, a road manager, and uh, and a booking agent, and and you know all kinds of people in between, and uh, uh, a lot of times. Uh, each level, people exercise their authority, and sometimes uh, it gets uh, gets a little crazy. Well, I've seen you in action many times, and I know you're very diplomatic, and you're you're able to sort of how how should I say massage the situation to make everything kind of work the way that it needs to work. But it's it's always different, right? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a lot of now our our stage guy uh, Marty Kramer you know he yep. uh, he has the same talent of uh, being able to keep things under control yeah yeah he's really he's good had, that way he's had to deal with a lot of strange uh, uh, folks that's yeah. for sure yeah no he's good that way though he's uh, he's very adamant about making things happen the way they need to happen but being nice but firm about it so he's good that way yeah yeah and then uh, tell me about your connection with red robinson i mean red robinson is a is a, a franchise in his own right right very well known and stuff so you you hit it off with him real early in in life and and you still have you probably still see him to this day right you still yeah yeah we we remain friends and uh it, it wasn't until he came back to vancouver from his stint in uh, portland oregon that we became partners while he was away uh I sort of became the local boy promoter, uh, doing those shows with Eddie Cochran and Gene Vincent, and yeah. and and of course when when Red came back, uh, we got together and became partners in Jaguar Enterprises Limited, yeah. And uh, we staged uh, dances mostly, and then when Roy showed us the the way to concerts, we did concerts, and uh, ultimately uh, he, I believe. Is probably one of the main reasons for my uh, becoming successful. Uh, he was uh, he was a major player. Basically, he opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, my record uh, previously had opened some doors, but this went even further. And um, uh, ultimately. Uh, he moved on to become full-time uh, advertising uh, in the advertising business, and I carried on uh, as Jaguar Entertainment. Uh, it yeah. wasn't Jaguar Enterprises any longer. It was just Jaguar Entertainment, and now Jaguar Music Group, but changed to that eventually. Yeah. And uh, uh, Roy was responsible for elevating me to another level. Yeah. Uh, international level basically so um those are the two big influences in my in my career 
Uh, yeah, well, Red had the the radio hype. I mean, back then, like you said, with the internet and stuff, you didn't have any of that. If you had a radio guy that could do the advertising and get you the hype that you needed for, for the shows, I mean, that was invaluable, right? Absolutely. The radio station wanted him out uh, to, in, in the public and uh, were only too eager to advertise, uh, allow us to advertise him being at the events. Yeah, And, of course... Uh, that brought the kids in, and uh, the over 18 thing was a problem in the city, so most of our dances were outside the city limits, and uh, fortunately, the kids would drive uh, wherever the dances were to, to go, and uh, yeah. it worked out just fine. We, yeah. uh, we, both, uh, we both earned enough money uh, with the Roy Orbison shows to put down payments on our first homes way back when. Nice. I mean, that's when uh, when real estate was, uh, you know, yeah. only a pittance of what what it costs today. It seems unreasonable that we could do that, but but it didn't take much, and uh, we both did that, and we credit Roy with buy, buying our first homes. Well, nice. well, of course, back then too, you could buy a house for under twenty thousand dollars, right? You yeah, know, ten thousand, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. So well, well, that's very cool. Well, I mean, music careers are a series of ups and downs, but I mean, you've been consistent in, in transitioning. I mean, you've you've had your fingers in so many different pies over the years, but it seems to have worked out for you. And then you you got into the Elvis 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 shows, and of course, I've I've played guitar for lots of those shows for you, and and that started way before the the Orbison tribute because Roy was still alive till 1988, right? So you had started the Elvis 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 before that, right? Now now Roy had a hand in that actually because. Um... I was scheduled to uh, to start a Canadian tour with a with a new guitar player, I believe it was, or uh, at least a musician. I'm not sure which one. And we had decided that um, uh, we would uh, do a rehearsal beforehand. And I arranged a, a month long engagement in Hawaii at the Boom Boom Club in Waikiki. Yeah. Um, I'd been going there on holidays, and I I knew the guy, and he was wanting to try shows after his Polynesian dinner show every night uh, was over by 7.30 or, or 8 o'clock. And uh, I, I talked him into Roy Orbison. We'll do, we'll do Roy Orbison for a month-long engagement. And he, he thought, yeah, let's give that a try. So, so I had booked Roy for that one-month engagement prior to a Canadian concert tour. And, and he had... Uh, triple bypass surgery uh, about a month before that was to start, I think. Oh. And and I had to cancel the tour, which was okay because that was far enough away. And I was in the process of trying to cancel this, and the guy was already selling tickets. He said he'd, he said he'd had tickets sold for all the shows for the month, and he said, why don't we just get a replacement artist? Yeah. And I thought, well... Oh wow! Hey, I said okay. I'll see what I can do. And as it as it happened, Dick Clark had had eight different Elvis impersonators on his weekly television show. It was a it was a phenomenon kind of a thing at the time. And I thought, hey, that that sounds interesting. So I phoned Dick Clark, or at least his office, and I I booked. I booked the the guy that I thought was the best on the program. I I looked him up from uh, he was from uh, Portland, Oregon, 
Uh, yeah. Bobby Greer. Bobby Greer, yeah. yeah. And uh, and I uh, I booked him for that month-long engagement. As it turned out, it sold out. And, uh, and it just made me aware of the power of Elvis because uh, I, I had no inkling of doing this kind of thing, tribute shows or whatever, but I thought I'd put three guys together, you know, the guy in the in the pink jacket and the guy in the leather suit and the guy in the jumpsuit. I'd do yeah. a three-part Elvis show. And uh, there was a movie playing in uh, Hawaii at the time called Torah, Torah, Torah. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'll call the show Elvis, Elvis, Elvis. Brilliant, brilliant idea. And that's what I did. Yeah. So, uh, and the next year, this was 78. The next year I was on the road uh, with Elvis, 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 and it was doing land office business, much like uh, uh, Roy, just like Roy, filling up the theaters. And I thought, holy golly, yeah. this is great. And uh, when, when, uh, when Roy came back, uh, ready to come back to work, his doctor had said to him, you know, go back out a bit, but don't go on any strenuous tours. So I booked him for a week at the cave or 10 days, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, while he was uh, here, he wanted to watch uh, uh, an NFL game. So on the Sunday, I had the whole band over to, the, to my house uh, for a barbecue. And uh, after after the game was over, uh, I played Roy a, a, a video a promo tape of my Elvis 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 show, and right in front of everybody, he said to me, "If I'm if I Les was still a, alive after he died, that I would promise him to to produce a tribute show of him, wow. Roy Orbison, nice. which which I was." able to do after he passed away. Absolutely. No, that's that's fantastic. Well, listen, let me take one more break and uh, we're going to come right back with Les Vote talking about uh, how he put together the tribute act to Roy Orbison. So we'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the 60s to 80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favorites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, welcome back. We're talking to Les Vote. We've been talking about the history of music and his promoting career, and we're talking about tribute artists now. And Larry Branson was the person when you we were talking to Roy, and he said, "Would you put together a show for me if I pass on?" And of course, Roy sadly died in 1988, and you had put together this show with Larry Branson. And from a personal perspective, I played many of those shows with Larry, and uh, was happy to be part of it and play guitar for those shows. So uh, I have a kind of a my own uh, part in it as well. So tell me about that, how that came about with Larry Branson. Sure. Well, Larry had, uh, had approached me, uh, at one point, uh, just about, about booking, not, not him and his band, not, uh, not an Orbison tribute or anything, but I went to see, uh, him perform and, and he did a Roy Orbison set in, in his, uh, program. 
and it was exceptionally good. Um, I didn't think much more about it at that time, but after uh, Roy passed and I thought of putting the tribute together, um, I, I, I approached him and, uh, and he wasn't too keen on it either. He, 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 when I told him Roy wanted it to happen, that's when it turned uh, positive for Larry. So okay. now he's he's ready to go. So when we started, um, I thought maybe maybe it best that that I do Buddy Holly, uh, Roy Orbison, and Elvis on the program rather than try and draw with just just Roy, just just to see what because Roy belonged in that all-star element and so i thought that would be a a positive tribute anyway that's how we introduced the show was buddy roy and elvis yeah and uh larry consistently uh got uh, most of the accolades and the praise from from uh from all the reviewers and the press and whatnot they were raving about about larry and um i thought okay I think it's t time we do just a Roy Orbison tribute, which uh, which we did do, and yeah. uh, we called it "This Lonely Heart," which uh, which Larry and uh, and uh, songwriter uh, Chris Bradley they yeah. wrote a song called "This Lonely Heart," which actually became a hit, and not a big hit, but it was. Yeah very well played in Vancouver. So a couple of things though. So Chris Bradley, he used to own the Brit in North Van, right? It was, um, and he just, yeah. he just passed away just a few months ago. We, we lost, I heard that. Yeah. We lost yeah. him in November. I I'd worked with Chris lots. Great guy. I really, really enjoyed working with him and he was, he was a gruff old Brit, but he was a good guy. And, uh, yeah. I really enjoyed him. And, and I didn't realize that he had written that song with Larry and that they had such a strong connection. Yeah. He arranged it and recorded oh. it. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and basically produced the record, which uh, right. which was 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 very well done. I mean, when you listen to that, uh, you, you can hear Roy in it all the way. It's uh, it's very very well done. Yeah, no, really good. And and so I've I've started working with you in the early '90s. So I've probably known you for 30 years. And uh, you did the Buddy Roy Elvis. The so one thing about those shows was you you interchanged the Elvises, and there was different buddies that you used. There was a bunch of a few different guys that you yes. used, but 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 Larry was the consistent one because he really looked like and really had the tone of Orbison, right? So he was strong in that role. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, it's funny you talk about the birthdays. I remember we, we did that, the show, This Lonely Heart. We, we flew to Winnipeg. I think we were at the casino in Winnipeg. It was my 44th birthday and I was sitting at uh, um, the the main intersection. What is it? I forget what it's called in Winnipeg. And it was my 44th birthday. We were there doing the Larry Branson shows, This Lonely Heart at the big casino there. That was that was my oh yeah, <laughs> but those are fun. I enjoyed doing those shows, and uh, and then also you did the backtracks for them. I played guitar on a lot of that too. There was a couple different guys, but I know um, uh, Al Rempel came over to my house, and I recorded a bunch of the guitar tracks for that backtrack for the backtracks. Yeah, Larry started to do uh, solo shows with uh, with the music uh, uh, recorded. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to we'd sometimes have have a couple of girls and him uh yeah. on stage but the band was pre-recorded and 
for, for smaller venues where they couldn't afford uh, the whole thing. And sometimes it didn't even have the girls. Yeah. Just no, it, was, it was nice. It was a good idea to do. And then of course, Al Rempel, we just lost him too. He, he passed uh, just a couple months ago, I think now. Yes. I, yeah. I, so, I'd known he'd passed as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that was too bad. Every, I really enjoyed working with uh, Al. He was a good guy. So anyway, uh, that's how the tribute shows started. And yeah. from there, um, in the early eighties, uh, the floodgates opened up and uh, there were tributes to everything. Yes. And uh, I would pick and choose this and that and the other uh, Beatles groups. And, uh, and uh, oh, I'd try them out for a, for a weekend, maybe here and there. And those that were really popular, I would, I would uh, do more extensive touring with them. Yeah. And then you did a bunch at expo too, right? Did you do other than the Elvis at expo? Did you, you did the, any other tributes? At no, I, I didn't. I, I did. Uh, I just did the Elvis, Elvis, Elvis show. That was the end of it. We, we did that one at the big club there. Okay. I forget what they called that big night. Club. It was 86th street, right? Yeah. yeah. 86th street. We had an Elvis show in there for, for quite a period. Okay. And that was the, that was the end of it. That was, that was by the time, uh, you know, a lot of the copycat, uh, three-part Elvis shows were all over the place. And, uh, that's when I, I moved to, uh, you know, we, we'd moved on to legends of rock and roll, buddy Roy and Elvis. And then, then it was a whole, I did, uh, uh, a show called the killer cash and the King, okay. yeah. <laughs> which, which was, was Jerry Lee, Johnny Cash and Elvis yeah. <clears throat> all the team together. So I would, I would package the shows in, in, uh, different ways. Uh, we'd have, uh, well, uh, Kenny Rogers along Dolly Parton yeah. and, uh, had, uh, uh, I guess we called that country gold with, yeah. with packages of country artists. Yeah. I played for a bunch of those ones with, uh, Marty, yeah. Marty and them. Yeah. Yeah. So it just expanded all over the place. And, uh, of course, um, it's it's nothing new anymore. In fact, it's uh, you know it's uh, it's kind of old these days. So, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I guess it's the law of economics. You come up with a good idea, you start milking it, you make money, and everyone else starts going, "Hey, wow, he's making money at this. We can do that too." And then you get a big flood, and then and then what happened? I think we talked about it before. Is that the talent starts to, to water down? So you get some really third rate artists out there doing these third rate shows and then it gets somehow connected to the whole industry. Right. So they're thinking, sure. The theaters don't know any difference. So these, these Mickey Mouse shows are calling up to theater and the theater remembers how well we did with some of our uh, projects. And they say, yeah, let's take this on. So the theaters do it on their own. Yeah. And it turns out to they show up and there's not even a band. There's just this, uh, you know, this, yeah. uh, uh, track show kind of thing and all of a sudden people who paid a good dollar to get in start getting turned off and the whole business uh, sort of goes in the toilet yeah yeah it hurts everybody when that happens for sure exactly so then you got involved with Merritt Mountain Music Festival of course and I was I was involved in that for many years and we were the house band and you hired us many times we, we played for well the Jerry Lee we played for the Dolly Roy um, played for everybody I think they're for years. And so how did you get involved with that? You and Claude were partners? 
Yeah, we were, we shared an office uh, with, uh, um, I'm trying to think of our, our agency way back when. Um, uh, anyway, um, we, we, we had an opportunity. The first show was, was uh, the first uh, uh, festival was, um, um, I'm trying to think of it. Can you, can well, you it, think it was, of it? It was the Headley Blast, right? Headley Blast. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it was the Headley Community Association wanted to do something. So uh, we put on this uh, event uh, and it worked pretty well. Um, but there were some problems and the, the, the association sort of fired us and, and took it over. And uh, uh, we had gotten the bug by that time and we looked for another location and opened up in Merritt and, uh, and actually had buried that whole scenario. They, they went broke the next year and uh, we proceeded to um, move forward with uh, with bigger and better shows. Um, it ended up uh, with a kind of a, a scramble. I, uh, I sort of fall out of favor, fell out of favor uh, with, uh, with Claude and the, and the crew. Um, I was uh, ba basically um, thinking that we needed to, to cut back because the cost of artists were, were getting so high and, uh, and I thought, uh, you know, it was impossible to 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 keep up with uh, with the the marketplace to have the best in the in the business there because it couldn't support it. And uh, anyway, um, Claude was no, no, no. You got to go big, big, big. And yeah. I uh, I just went my own way and went back to my tributes and different thing and. Yeah. They they did run out of gas. They 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 eventually uh, did have big problems. So um, yeah, I remember talking to you about that because I mean you said at the time that you had some money invested in it, but it it could be one bad year and it could be all over. That was rather prophetic because that's ended up what happened, right? Exactly. Uh, that was my reason for hanging yeah. in as long as I did. And then when I finally cut ties, I mean I, I lost the money. Yeah. It, it was gone for sure. That was a hundred grand, which was a lot of money for me at the time. Yeah. Which you kind of knew was, was on the table at that point. And then, uh, you know, the, the other thing that we had talked about was that uh, if you're going to run a music festival like that, and you're going to pay bands up to, I think what was Kenny, Kenny Chesney was a million bucks or something. I mean, it was yeah. getting up into some yeah. serious numbers there, unless you have somebody in the whole group there that has a bank account that can write those kinds of checks, you're going nowhere because, it's, it's going to crash at some point, right? Yeah, in the early days, uh, some, uh, the, the uh, what's the big music company that goes across Canada? I can't think of their name. Oh, um, Nation. Um, yeah, uh, Live Nation. Live Nation. Yeah, yeah. Live Nation got involved in the early years, and uh, they backed out too. They yeah. they uh, they got out and and. And Claude found new investors and this and that, and they continued yep. to to dig up investors, and uh, everybody was losing their money. Uh, eventually, it all went yep. boom. 
Well, it was a it was a fun ride. I mean, I was happy to be part of it. We had a good time at Merritt. We got to see lots of great bands. You booked lots of great acts there, and you were in a, a really an integral part of it for a long time until the last couple of years. And then we got out. I think the last year as well. We only played one one day, but we had done lots of shows for you there, and I always appreciated it less and appreciated the way you treated us and and being part of the shows with you, especially. Well, uh, I appreciate your effort as well because um, uh, it was mutual. Uh, you always did a professional job and uh, always very good at it. And so um, we had a good, a good run. Yeah, for uh, for quite a few years. And so so let me ask you this, uh, given your history of the whole music scene, how do you think the music business has changed over the last, say, 50 plus years? You know, you've lived a lot of it. You've seen a lot of it. W- what do you think the differences are in the music business? Well, I guess it's become more of a of a business and it's a boardroom uh, uh, game with partnerships and and big money and and all kinds of uh uh, problems, uh, that I didn't foresee, you know, it's, uh, um, too, too big, uh, and too much going on, uh, for my liking. I, I guess it's the way it is. And, and people coming up today, um, you know, know everything about how it is. So, um, you just, uh, fall in place and, uh, and do your job, but, uh, it's yeah. much different. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I know. I talked to you uh, a couple of years ago. I think we talked about the fact that, um, you know, you're going to book your legend shows and sort of go with your demographic and not try to pursue or chase the newer stuff now. And it's a different world, right? I mean, it's a different world out there than what you came up in. Absolutely. Uh, if I uh, if I woke up today from uh, uh, twenty years ago or thirty years ago, I wouldn't recognize it. That's for sure. But you're still finding your way through it, and 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 hopefully you'll get back into it. You've always been an inspiration to me because you're the kind of guy that just keeps adjusting and going. And that that's kind of what I've done too. I've been able to make a living, but it, you've got to adjust. You got to change. You got to grow. You got to go where the money is do what you need to do. And and you had said to me years ago when we were doing the legend shows, you said, well, you guys are a, a good band in your own right. You can go out and do your own shows and play your own shows and stuff, which I always appreciated you saying that because that was kind of my vision too. And to just adjust to the marketplace. And you've been really good at that. And I hope that you continue to do it. Sure. I, I always recommend to, to people go and do your own shows because if nobody will hire you, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, once you start selling tickets, uh, everybody notices. Yeah. You know, I notice when you sell tickets, that's when I'll come and I'll hire you. You don't have to come to me then. Yeah. I'll be coming to you. So, you know, if you're confident, go out, do your own shows, progress. Yeah. Smaller at first. Once you can sell tickets, yeah. you can sell your band. Yeah, uh, and the casinos have really helped with that too, right? There's been lots of casino showrooms. We did a whole bunch of them for you. Yes, yes. The, uh, the casinos will will work with bands too and on a percentage basis sometimes where you don't have to uh, risk a fortune to, uh, to put on the show. If you're strong enough, I think you'd have to prove yourself a little bit before the casino would, would enter into a deal with you. You'd have to be basically a proven group yeah. that can sell a few tickets. Yeah, fair enough, because you've you've done the, I mean, 
straight promotions is a bit of a blood sport, right? You've taken a bath on a few shows and, and you get stung a few times over the years. And then you, you have other shows where you make lots of money, but the, the casinos kind of soften that a little bit by giving you a low guarantee or, or giving you enough that you're not taking a big risk, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Ideal situation. Yeah. So let me ask you, just as we wrap up here, I appreciate your time. I really appreciate you talking to me today. But looking back, what would you change about the course of your career, how it was handled, you know, the managers, the bandmates, the studios? What what would you do differently if you had to do it over again? As a performer, uh, I would have, um, uh, should have taken advantage of uh, uh, the opportunity to record uh, uh, that song, yeah. come softly to me and and i would have been uh i i would have been able to do that job because i i suited that song perfectly yeah. uh and and it might have changed the course of my uh, career as a performer yeah. as an artist uh, as a promoter i don't think i would change anything because um i progressed uh as well as i think i i could have and uh i accomplished as much as i uh uh, probably more than, uh, than I had anticipated. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's been a joy throughout. So, uh, I can't say I would change much there, uh, because, uh, progress just, uh, it comes along at, at its will and there's nothing you can do about it much except be as, uh, uh you know, as, uh, uh strong as you can be and take advantage of all the opportunities and and um that's it i guess yeah no i think that's right and also sometimes when you're a young guy and you're just trying to work you're not overthinking it right you go okay here's an opportunity sure let's try that we'll, we'll promote these shows we'll do this and some of them work out some of them not so much but you just go and do what you do right and it's uh it's inspirational to me that, that the fact that you did so many different things and you were willing to embrace so many different things, even running the dances and running a club or whatever, right? Yeah, I I, uh, I was interested in, in a lot of things and uh, it got to where I had to discard the uh, the nightclub and the in the dance hall and uh, yeah. and ultimately the the booking agency when I yeah. started promoting exclusively for Roy. And that's, that's, that's where it got to be, uh, uh, you know, a full-time, uh, business and, uh, and profitable. Yeah. Well, that's good. So what about uh, outside of music? Anything else you're interested in? Do you have any other uh, things that you do outside of music? Any other passions or hobbies or anything? No, uh, getting to the point where, um, you know, I see the end coming at some point here. Um, I, I want to stay active in, in, uh, as much as I can, which is why I'm kind of doing these, these posts, uh, uh, storytelling, uh, sort of thing. Once I, I finish, uh, everything I'm about, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because, uh, I can't talk much about tributes. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not as interesting as, as, uh, is the other part. So anyway, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm just hanging on is what I'm doing. 
<laughs> oh, good. Well, you're doing you're doing fine, my friend. And uh, you know, the tribute thing. I think the reason, part of the reason that's so big is because the the stars, the original stars, were so. I mean, look at the Elvis. So when Elvis died in '77, right? I mean, you can see why the Elvis, Elvis, Elvis took off because people yearned for him. He was 42 years old. He was gone. Orbison's gone. A lot of these stars that really were in people's hearts are gone. And if you can recreate that for them in some way, they can suspend their disbelief and and watch a good tribute artist and sort of relive that, right? So it, it's important. Yeah, it had its uh, place. Um, uh, anyway, uh, you know, I think like uh, uh, the audience is getting older, um, the the younger people don't have that same appeal. And that's the, the reason why I believe... Uh, uh, my oldies shows are are coming to an end uh, because the younger folks, well, they might uh, be into a tribute show. It would be somebody from the 80s, uh, 90s, or 2000s or whatever, as opposed to uh, the oldies people I've been dealing with. Yeah, that's a fair point. But there's still still enough of them around. I think we can we can milk it for another few years here. So, <laughs> well, for you, uh, yeah. you're still in it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still doing. It. You know, I'm still enjoying it more than ever, and uh, and I'm I'm thankful. I have an attitude of gratitude. I'm thankful to be able to sing and play, and and I'm still doing my thing. And I'm going to come out stronger than ever once this COVID thing is all dealt with. And that I'm I'm hungry to get going. So uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths and and do that as well. Many thanks to Les Vote for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. A great deal of information is available at lesvote.info. You'll find a very impressed, uh, a very impressive detailed biography that is well worth reading. And I believe you still have the legendsofrockandroll.com up, but uh, the shows are all suspended at this point. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other insider information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare and take care. <laughs>